it's my pleasure to be talking today with Professor Colin Kidd of the University of St Andrews. Uh, Colin's work will probably be known to many of you listening to this. Um, his interests are very varied. He's worked on themes including uh, British national identities, he's worked on race and ethnicity, um, and also enlightenment and religion, which is something that we will touch on a bit today because he's agreed to talk to us about his most recent published book entitled The World of Mr. Casabon, Britain's Wars of Mythography, 1700 to 1870, which was published in 2016 as part of Cambridge University Press's Ideas in Context series. So thank you very much, Colin, for agreeing to talk to us about your book today. Um, I thought maybe we could start by talking a bit about the title of the book. So you chose to start with Mr. Casabon, a fictional character from George Eliot's Middlemarch. So I was just wondering if you could expand a little bit on why you chose to start with a fictional character with Mr. Casabon. Did he lead you to this study? Yeah. Yeah, well, I... Um... I, I, I suppose I, I began the study uh, out of a kind of frustration with the sort of things that I'd been doing before. Uh, I'd been doing fairly uh, wide ranging studies, as, as, as you mentioned, of um, um, ethnic identities and, and, and race um, uh, over, over fairly long time periods, um, you know, between between the 17th century and actually coming up to the present in, in, in the case of the book on, on, on race. And um, uh, I guess I, I came to the conclusion that uh, um, doing that sort of thing made me a kind of fraud, <laughs> that I was a kind of charlatan, uh, as it were, just skating over the surface of history. And so um, uh, I, I had this desire to do to do something something particular and and so it was out of that same same as it were frustration with the with the overly generalized that that that, that drew me into um uh, local history and uh of micro history and, and and there was of course the the added attraction of um of not 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 simply doing a micro history of something that had happened but a micro history of um, a fictional character uh, in a book, and secondly, I mean, I um, I'd always been addicted to um, detective stories and that idea of the puzzle, and so um, part of me um, felt this desire to um, to reconstruct a fictional, non-existent book. Uh, na namely, Casabon's unfinished key to all mythologies, uh, and I thought I would have a go at at trying to recover the content and arguments of that non-existent book. Okay, thank you. Um, when you were looking at that context, then in the book you describe um, trying to recapture this what you call a vanished world of yeah. the science of mythography. So you describe how one of the things you wanted to do was pick up on some of the, the real figures, mm -hmm. historical figures who are mentioned in yeah. Middlemarch, and also 
looking at the preoccupations that are mentioned by some other mythographers um, in the book. So looking at, on the one hand, historical figures and on the other, their preoccupations. Uh, perhaps you could expand a little bit on some of those things that you were looking at. Yeah. So I I, I, I suppose um, the book the book that I wrote was in a way driven by um, by the book that George Eliot uh, wrote, and so in in the course of the book, she she mentions um, various real um, antiquaries and mythographers and polemicists from the from 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 the 18th century, um, such as. Conyers Middleton and William Warburton, and alludes um, to George Stanley uh, Faber, and so I, I, I thought I would um, investigate some of some of those um, uh, characters, and there are also mentions of, of a few fictional uh, antiquaries and mythographers in the book, such as Pike, Tench, and Carp, uh, and so part. Part of what I wanted to do was um, explore explore the fishy theme uh, in, uh, in 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 Middlemarch and um, and and Casabon's activities, but 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 also to um, pursue some of these uh, real life uh, mythographers. To, so maybe we'll come back to the real life mythographers in a minute, but I just wanted to ask you a bit about how far. George Eliot had a, a horse in the race, as it were, because Casabon is really not portrayed in very sympathetic terms mm -hmm. in the novel. Um, how far do you think George Eliot was trying to malign the kinds of activities that Casabon and that tradition uh, were part of? Yeah, well, I, I, I think there is uh, clearly something uh, Polemical going on in, in in the novel, given that given that George Eliot has um, has lost has lost her faith, um, and so yeah, she 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 clearly sees the um, enterprise in which Casabon was engaged uh, as uh, an empty and ludicrous one, which it, which it, which indeed it was, which was of course part of the attraction uh, for for me because I'm. Um, uh, uh, I, I, I suppose um, if you divide historians up, I mean, we're never sort of entirely one or the other, but some some historians um, are keen to see how the past explains the present. Mm -hmm. And there are other kinds of historians who who like to uh, explore the past as a foreign country. Uh, I, I, I suspect I probably fall into the latter camp <laughs> uh, and certainly did here. Um, yeah, and of course there were various contexts uh, here. Um, uh, that, again, that was part of the attraction of the of the book was the various layers. So, in other words, um, so George Eliot um, is composing the book uh, in 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 the late eighteen sixties, early eighteen seventies. It's it's published between eighteen seventy one and eighteen seventy two, but she's writing about uh, England, Kirka 1830, but at the same time, the England of Casabon, Kirka 1830, Casabon is referring back to these figures of the 18th century. So I, I, I was attracted to this to this triple triple layering because, um, as everybody knows, my 
My favourite tense is the pluperfect. <laughs> it is a very good tense. <laughs> That's your uh, classical background coming through there, I think, Colin. Yeah, I mean, there's also something sort of, um, yeah, I, I feel I feel rather embarrassed about 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 confessing to this, and, and, and I I fear I might end up in Sud's corner uh, for for saying this, but. Um, I, I, um, I also, I, I, I started uh, the book when I was actually contracted to write another book, ah. uh, uh, another book on 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 the American uh, Amer American constitutional theory, past and mm -hmm. present, and um, I, um, I was going through quite a serious illness uh, at the time that I just, uh, well, just. I just signed the contract for the American Constitution book before I became very, very, very ill. And mm -hmm. then during during recuperation, um, I I basically decided I didn't want to write that book. And eventually, when I got a bit better, I just thought, well, one of the first things I did was I wrote a check to the to, to the publishers and paid them back their advance. I said I wanted I wanted this off my shoulders. Mm -hmm. But during my recuperation, I um, I couldn't. I, I'm not very musical. I, I, in fact, I'm possibly the most unmusical person there that there could be. And during my recuperation, I couldn't actually listen to to much music. But one thing that I did uh, listen to was um, uh, Von Von Williams' Fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis. Oh, that's a great piece. Yeah, yeah. And um, I was intrigued by this kind of by the structureless structure. Uh, of that piece, how there's a there's uh, there's a, a as it were a main melody, but it, it it only appears occasionally, and there are as it were motifs from that melody that that, that surface throughout the, the piece. As it were, they they become blurry and then they come come into focus and then move out of focus again. And basically, my my ambition uh, around then was I thought I'd like to write a book. That um, that mirrored the structure of Von Williams, um, as it were, structureless structured uh, fantasia in a theme by Thomas Tallis, and um, I don't I don't think I succeeded, but but oddly that was that was the main that was one of the main uh, drivers uh, behind the book was to was was to write. Uh, something that had that, as it were, played with um, the, as it were, the melody was uh, the key to all mythologies. But then there were, as it were, the the um, the motifs, the the elements that 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 made up um, that um, uh, that melody. Things like the double doctrine, the idea of a, a civilization which had a uh, an outer religion that said one thing and an inner an inner cult that that um that that said that had a a very different kind of um theological or philosophical content or, or the idea of pagano popery um this idea that um uh, christianity or, and the roman catholic church in, in particular was was indebted and as it were uh grounded in a kind of a roman pagan past that it could never quite uh, escape those little elements of of the 
the key to all mythologies. I, I wanted to sort of bring in, in and out of focus in, in the mm. course of the work. I, I don't think in any way I succeeded, and it was a it was an utterly utterly ludicrous um, idea. I mean, it was it was a kind of holy grail. It was a kind of holy. But I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, um, that along with the idea of the micro history and the detective story were what un, 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 underpinned uh, the work. Mm. I really want to reread the book again now with the. Vaughan Williams theme in mind and see how far this these motifs uh, come out in that way. Um, but I think I think you did succeed actually in bringing out these different motifs and layers um, throughout the book. Um, one thing I would quite like to ask you about is so we've talked a bit about some of the motifs that come through. Mm. Another thing you talk about in the book is how this science of mythography and these various uh, strategies, if you like, were drawn into what you describe as a struggle for the mind of European civilization. Mm. So I wonder if you could expand a bit on what was at stake for the participants in these wars of mythography. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think I, I think here uh, again, I'm going to. I mean, much as much as I admire uh, George Eliot, um, uh, I think I think she's engaged in uh, a little bit of um, concealment in the book that she reveals so much of Casabon, uh, but there are other aspects of Casabon's activity that she that, that she doesn't reveal uh, uh, fully and. Um, uh, I think she portrays him as being utterly otherworldly. Mm -hmm. uh, but during uh, the period from the 1790s through to the 1830s, um, it was the case that that mythography was a central um, uh, terrain in the ideological warfare between um, uh, deistic, uh, often Jacobin uh, critics of uh, uh, established biblical religion, and and the defenders of of, of of religious orthodoxy, and the way George Eliot sets up, uh, but in, insofar as there is a tension in the book, it's 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 an Anglo-German one mm. uh, between. Casabon as a as a as a representative of um, futile Anglican scholarship, um, his cousin Will Ladislaw, uh, who who has some access. Uh, I mean, he's not an expert in it, but he's some access to the to, to, to the world of German critical scholarship. But I guess one of the things that uh, I, I discovered in, in 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 the course of the book, I mean. Uh, was that actually um, there was an Anglo-French backstory um, that, that George Eliot doesn't talk about, that actually Casabon's activity was largely directed against um, French uh, critics of established religion who had used mythography, a kind of myth mythographical strategy to deconstruct Orthodox religion, and I guess the key figures here uh, were um, Volney and and Charles Dupuis, 
and, and, and to some extent, Tom Paine's Age of Reason participates in that too. But I, oddly, I, I think um, much as Paine was um, uh, often cited in the late in the 1790s and early 19th century, I think actually Volney was probably a, a more central character, actually, even in translation in, mm. um, in, in, in in the English world. And it's really Volney's deconstruction of religion in, 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 in the ruins that um, causes a, a flutter in the in the ducats of Anglican uh, scholarship. Mm. And how how convincing were Volney's arguments? So did Volney's critique mean that mythography from the British Protestant apologetic angle completely ceased to exist because you talk in your book about how it was a very slow and protracted death. Mm. Um, how far did they actually engage with the arguments he made and how um, dangerous did they think his arguments were? Yeah, well, I mean, they, they certainly thought that Volney's arguments were dangerous because basically um, he, 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 he reduced um, all, all, all religions to a, to a kind of um, worship uh, and observation of the natural world, whether, whether it be vegetation, the seasons, um, the... Um, uh, astral patterns in in, in 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 the night sky as it were, there was there, there, there was nothing that was that was uh real or historical in in any religion all all, all religions were as it were um uh, as it were an, an anthropomorphized versions of of as it were natural phenomena as as observed um but of course, um, I think both sides, uh, both sides were talking rubbish mm -hmm. uh, because, um, yes, uh, the Christian defenders of orthodoxy uh, were, 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 were deluded in their, in their uses, their own uses of, 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 of mythography to defend Christianity. Um, the argument that somehow um, pagan pagan religions when properly decoded uh, revealed themselves to be versions of um, stories found in the book of Genesis and so on. But Volney, Volney is just as just as guilty of being reductive. He too was engaged in a key search for a key to all mythologies. Mm. His was a, 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 a destructive deconstructive one but equally it was it was running along uh, uh tram lines was was myopic in, in its approach uh and so um as it were they're the deconstructors and the defenders uh of of, of orthodoxy uh, they're just mirror images of mm. of, of, of one another one of the things I found very interesting in the book, to go back to the orthodoxy part, um, was just how much room there was for manoeuvre within the orthodox um, world of looking at these things. Um, and you talk about how there weren't very many limits on 
the directions that orthodox thinkers could take their interpretations of pagan mythography or mythology. Um, and I wonder if you could expand on that a bit. So were there any hard lines at all? I'm thinking a bit of um, biblical chronology um, and biblical narratives. So the kind of the Noachic diffusion argument. Was it possible for orthodox thinkers to take a slightly more um, nuanced or relaxed approach to those kinds of questions? Or was that really uh, a boundary line you couldn't cross? Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's hard to say what the boundaries were that one one, one couldn't cross because, um, uh, oh, I, I guess I guess um, any challenges to the, um, uh, to, 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 to the unity of the human race um, mm. undermine the biological transmission of original sin. So I guess I guess that was that was uh, a hard, that was a very hard um, boundary. But um, in terms of the uh, of chronology, well, given that there was both the um, the Hebrew Bible uh, and the Septuagint to to work with, that gave well, there was a bit of a bit of uh, room for manoeuvre there. There was also the possibility that things that seemed literal could also be interpreted uh, as 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 being somehow um, uh, symbolic or met, 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 metaphorical. Uh, and um, so there was there, there was a bit of bit of room for for, for manoeuvre uh, there. Um, plus, there were there, there were so many um, potential potential strategies uh, at work in in um, accounting for and deconstructing uh, other other religions and mythologies and relating them uh, to, to to Christian orthodoxy. Um, um, for for example, I mean, um, one of the strategies used by uh, one of the central mythographers of the period, J J Jacob Bryant, was was a hybrid one, mm. um, which was as or what um, uh, I think I term in, in the book the heliarchite interpretation. In other words, uh, other pagan religions were indebted to sun worship. In other words, there was this observation of the natural world and celebration of the natural world, but there was also an archite element. In other words, there was some relationship back to uh, the Book of Noah so that um, Bryant saw other other religions uh, as a combination of worship of the natural world and uh, some celebration of a kind of, kind of distorted memory of um, the flood story from the Book of Genesis. So this potential for, as it were, hybridizing uh, there, uh, that, that that created a lot of flexibility. So, in other words, you could be both uh, an orthodox Christian defender of, uh, as it were, uh, an inheritance from the Book of Genesis, but you could actually combine that with a more naturalistic. In other words, you could you could be a Casabon and a Volney simultaneously, mm. and somehow find a way of weaving both together in mm. in in, in defence of overall Christian orthodoxy. So it's it's a it's a very, a very rich, uh, very rich world, uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, a fair bit of cross appropriation going, going on uh, too.
Yeah, and uh, another thing that struck me that sort of is similar to this idea of the the flexibility within orthodoxy to to grapple with these pagan myths and um, was the point you raise about um you say uh the tension between classical paganism and the Judeo-Christian past was rarely so threatening as to suggest an impasse, which is very interesting because um it is often it has been a theme in in some works. Uh, to stress how much of a threat engagement with classical antiquity mm. uh, posed to religion in the Enlightenment era. So I'm thinking of uh, Peter Gay's classic work and this idea of the philosophers as modern pagans uh, setting mm. themselves up against the Christian tradition. Um, so maybe you could expand a little bit on um, on that, because one of the interesting things you do is situate that engagement with uh classical heritage in a much longer context in the book. So perhaps you could elaborate a little on that. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 there were many things that went wrong with the book. <laughs> uh, and uh, I suppose, as it were, I, as I say, what my what my central desire was it, 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 in, in the book was, was, was it were, to do something that was very, very specific, mm -hmm. that was that was micro historical. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess what I what I realised after a while was that Casabon um, was engaged in uh, relating uh, Christian orthodoxy to the pagan world, and what um, what he was engaged on and what I had stumbled on was actually one of the the biggest uh, and, and longest running themes in Western civilization. It was yeah. in fact in, in fact. For many periods of history, this was the big theme in Western civilization. In that there were there were two uh, main cultural legacies in Western civilization. One, the legacy of the uh, Judeo-Christian biblical tradition, and on the other, uh, the Greco-Roman pagan tradition. And right from the patristic era, uh, that had been something that. Um, that the earliest patristic intellectuals had had been had been grappling with, I, I guess most obviously, say in someone like like Lactantius, mm -hmm. uh, and had been a uh, a theme in 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 the medieval period. Uh, certainly was was dominant at the a dominant theme in, in in the Renaissance, and I guess maybe maybe slips out of focus a little uh, in. In, in the 18th century, or at least in, in, in 18th century, historic, in the historiography of the 18th century. Um, but uh, I think what I what I what I concluded was it was it, it, it was indeed uh, there, maybe maybe not uh, exactly in in in, in the form that um, uh, Peter Gay uh, alluded alluded to, but actually was it was it was a dominant. So so what I found was I. I, I intended to write this um, very particular microhistorical work, uh, and, and discovered that I'd, I'd stumbled across um, the big theme of um, the accommodation of paganism and um, and Christianity. I, as I say, a theme I think that had largely slipped from view in the historiography of the Enlightenment, not with, notwithstanding uh, Peter Gay uh, or, or indeed Frank Manuel's yeah. the 18th century confronting us. Nonetheless, it had somewhat slipped from view. And um, and in intellectual history, I suppose it's it, it's something that that 
that resurfaces in a in a in a way uh, after after middle March in in uh, James Fraser's uh, the gold the golden bow, but but actually was um a sort of a, a minor uh, and understated theme in in the historiography uh, mm. of of the 18th and 19th century. And I suppose one of the things uh, I, I felt the the book has done is that it, in mistakenly going for this sort of micro historical approach, I actually uh, ran across this absolutely massive massive <laughs> theme that, that that had somehow slipped slipped um slipped from 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 you mm. i suppose the other thing uh that i'd uh uncovered was um yeah i guess i discovered or rediscovered um a whole branch of apologetics yeah that had slipped from the view of theologians so uh theologians uh apologetic theologians when trying to uh, defend and account for Christianity, um, there were two main kinds of evidences that they used, what was called the theology of the evidences. And one were sort of the primary, uh, the, the internal evidences for Christianity, that um, uh, there was something about the nature of, uh, of the gospel, the nature of Christianity that, that, that was intrinsically persuasive. Um, that obviously, e e even to theologians, that seemed a little subjective. And so they then searched for external evidences against which Christian truth could be calibrated. Mm -hmm. And they found that in, in miracles and in, and, and in prophecy, some sort of external means of calibrating um, Christianity with external factors. Now, what I discovered was that in 18th century uh, and early 19th century apologetics, there was a third uh, type of evidences, the collateral evidences. Uh, again, a for, again, a form of the external evidences, but a form of evidence found in, um, in religions that uh, at first sight seemed uh, driven by their antipathy their opposition to Christianity. And so that one one could find, if one found traces in uh, pagan religions that uh, offered some uh, justification for Christianity, such as legends of gardens and apples and uh, and and floods um, and so forth, that that, that these um, would uh, provide collateral evidence for the authority and authenticity of, of, of Christianity. In other words, it was a way, as far as Christian observers were concerned, of the false proving the true. Mm. It strikes me that um, one of the, the legacies of this kind of apologetic is something like comparative religion, which you do mm -hmm. touch on, um, yeah. I think, in the epilogue of your book, where you also talk about how these the science of mythography connects with the emergence of anthropology. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. So how does this science of mythography morph into things like comparative religion and anthropology towards um, 
the the 19th century. Yeah, well, I I guess it's it's I guess it begins with the notion of mapping, and uh, that just as we can, I mean, I think we're all familiar with the way in which um, we can map um, uh, the Greek pantheon onto the Roman pantheon of deities, so that um, we we map uh, Zeus onto Jupiter, we we. Uh, we, we can map Hermes onto Mercury and 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 and, and so on. Well, uh, the 18th century mythographers went went further. They thought that they could um, map uh, the Greco-Roman pagan deities onto other deities further afield, whether it be Babylonian or or. Or Hindu, or 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 or, or, or wherever. Mm. So um, that I think became the basis uh, of of a kind of um, comparative uh, religion. And one one must remember that um, the word ethnic um, in the 18th century didn't quite have the meaning it has now. It, it, its meaning was closer to to Gentile or mm-hmm. or, 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 or or pagan. Uh, and I guess there was a suggestion here that um, non non Judeo Christian religions, non monotheistic religions, were the religions of other other peoples, as it were. Hence, this uh, the terms you know, ethnic and Gentile. And of mm-hmm. course, the 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 Hindus uh, of India in the 18th century were were described as Gentus, nice. in other words, Gentiles. And so there's this whole phenomenon of gentilism or paganism uh, that underpins, as it were, the comparative study of other civilizations, other peoples, other religions, other uh, bodies of mythology. And I think that that is. Uh, and so, in other words, I think that comparative religion develops initially from um, this kind kind of para-theological uh, enterprise of comparing uh, Christianity and relating Christianity to these supposedly false uh, mm-hmm. religions, which ultimately, as the mythographers believed, derived from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, anthropology, I think, is also a very mysterious case because um, it's very hard to explain why anthropology develops as it does. Um, why does anthropology develop as a, as a global field uh, mm-hmm. in, 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 in the 19th century? Um, why didn't it just develop as a set of regional studies? Just as, as it were, the study of uh, Greek or Roman civilization developed as, 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 as the classics. Why mm-hmm. did we not then have a set of a set of regional studies of cultures and religions throughout the world. Why why does anthropology have this uh, global uh, reach? Mm. And, and, and I guess part I I think and this is where I've um, yes I've not made many friends in in, in the anthropological world <laughs> by, by 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 saying this um, is that. Although anthropology, of course, is a kind of deconstructive uh, enterprise involved in debunking uh, Christianity, uh, nonetheless, 
um, it's a kind of inversion of the global reach of apolo the apologetic mythography of the collateral evidences that, that, that as it were, the global uh, reach of the of the old apologetic mythographers is, mm. I believe, adopted by their critics um, in in the world of emergent anthropology and, as it were, that that uh, as it were the 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 Anglican um, um, message of the old mythography is turned inside out, and the anthropologists find a way of um, debunking religion and comparing cultures. But I think that they're, they're drawing on this on a version of the same template using the same parameters mm. of of the old orthodox mythographers who, whom they are trying to supplant. Mm. So I think there's there's an ironic um, there's an ironic uh, element uh, in in the rise of anthropology, which I suspect uh, most anthropologists uh, don't want to know about. Um, mm. Yes, I can I can see how that might be a controversial argument, yeah. but it does seem to have a lot of overlaps with um, these kinds of categories. So things like pagan or mm. Gentile, this sort of um, combining lots of different cultures and um, mm. but seeing them as united in being other than mm. the people looking at them. Um, mm. So that does seem to me a very interesting categorical similarity this grouping of diverse yeah. uh, religious cultures as a, a united field mm. of study mm. um which goes back uh, at least yeah to the early christian period so yes, or absolutely yeah. very interesting um evolution of the discipline mm -hmm. um i suppose my one of my other questions i had for you is how does this this study we've talked about it a little bit but how does it connect with your wider historical interests so it seems to me that one of the the key themes in this that might connect with some of your other work is an interest in historiography and um, mm. because this is people writing a history of humanity essentially um, and trying to understand how these different people fit into a global history um, and also questions of identity as well seem to pop up. Um, I wonder if you see any of these connections with your previous work or or not so much. You know, I think, uh, uh, yeah, I think uh, the book uh, evolves out of something that was that had um, come into view when, when I did um, British Identities Before Nationalism mm. that was published in the late in the late 90s. Um, and so that was, uh, as I've mentioned before, that this this um, uh, discovery that the word ethnic um, uh, related as much to paganism and it related as much to beliefs and religions as as it as as it did to, as it were, races and and, uh, and um, cultures uh, as it, as as it were. Um, so. When I um, was exploring what I called ethnic theology in in um, British identities before nationalism, this this um, fascination by early modern of early modern uh, antiquarians with 
um, account with it, it relating the the peoples of the world somehow to um, to the flood of Noah and then the peopling of the world by um, Noah's sons Ham, Shem, and Japheth and their descendants. And so this whole um, uh, history uh, of, the, of of the Noah kids, I guess that that was that was in a way uh, the germ uh, for, for Mr. Casabon. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, I suppose uh, my very final question was, what are you thinking of looking at next? So will this connect with any future projects or are you embarking on something totally different? Mm. I, uh, yeah, most of what I'm doing is, is totally different, but uh, but my my wife and I are, are translating uh, Volney's, uh, Volney's runes, providing a a modern uh, edition of of that that um, was something that, that that came into focus um, as an absolutely uh, canonical um, work in, um, in 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 debates of the 1790s and then uh, into into the into into the 19th century um, uh, and and without without which um, much of much of the poetry of the Romantic period, a lot of Shelley's work just can't just can't be uh, explained. It, it, mm -hmm. Absolute central work. So that that that's the only offshoot uh, from this. I look forward to to reading that translation when it appears. Yeah. Um, well, thank you very much, Colin, for yeah. a very interesting discussion of your book. Yeah. Um, yes, thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Bye.